to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Esbekuldova. Joining me today is Emily West, an Associate Professor of Communication at the Univers University of Massachusetts Amherst, to discuss her book, Buy Now, How Amazon Branded Convenience and Normalized Monopoly, published in 2022 with the MIT Press. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> So Amazon has become ubiquitous and judging by your book to an extreme degree in the United States, being as it is the biggest online retailer in the US, the biggest seller of cloud computing services in the world of books and eBooks in the US being a marketing platform, logistics and delivery network, payment service, book publisher, film producer, hardware manufacturer, credit lender, and more. As you write, Amazon is very big in multiple respects, but prefers that we do not notice. Amazon is in many ways the symbolic material and digital infrastructure of platform capitalism, and as such it has enormous power. It not only seeks to lock us into its ecosystem, but it also acquires, I would argue, the powers of extra statecraft, to use Kelly Easterling's concept. While you do not use the concept in the book, I could not not think of it as I was reading your book, because this concept captures, I think, fairly well what you're describing. Extra statecraft as a concept like you do throughout foregrounds the power of that which is typically backgrounded, such as Amazon's data centers, logistics and distribution, fulfillment centers and warehouses, and not to mention the digital platform itself that nudges us and even often decides on our behalf, pretending to know us better than we know ourselves. And as such, the concept reveals the power of these invisibilized architectures to govern us. What I particularly liked in your book were the remarks that run through it and that align with this concept of extra statecraft. The remarks on Amazon's regulatory power, on its power to set the terms for consumers, for sellers, for the market really, its standard setting power, its ideological power, its algorithmic power which translates into a form of governance, and we could go on. A power that outpaces the law and could be said to be the secret weapon of Amazon, which I would also say lies behind the normalization of monopoly, which you describe so well. Uh, and yet, as you write, much of this power is imperceptible to the majority of consumers. It is something that we do not really think about, or if we know about it, we tend to disavow this knowledge. Uh, even more startling, despite the various revelations of awful working conditions and exploitation at Amazon, of union busting, excessive worker surveillance, and inhumane pressures to ensure the seamless and frictionless consumer experience, Amazon has not really received as much attention in academic literature as the other big tech giants. So I'm really very happy that you wrote this book. And I really appreciate the links you make between the distribution and infrastructural networks, power and the logic of platform capitalism. And to start off, maybe you could share with us how you came to study Amazon and decided upon the key questions that guide your book and what are these questions? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I really, I think the moment when I started to really think about Amazon was in 2015, when I was scrolling through news headlines, and I came across this article in the New York Times, it was an investigative piece about working conditions, 
at um, Amazon headquarters in Seattle. So this was actually about the white collar workers, the software engineers, um, the you know account managers, and how brutal um, the working conditions were. You know, the article basically argues it's a bordering on psychological abuse, kind of pushing the boundaries of like how much you can extract from people and what kinds of HR practices that you have um, to you know always put the the delight and the convenience and pushing forward the services to consumers over the well-being and the sustainability of your employees. So it was a it was a really um, shocking and disturbing article, and it also did talk about the you know the productivity expectations and some of the abuses in the um, the fulfillment centers or the warehouses as well. And people just really responded. It was the most commented on article on the New York Times up to that point. Uh, like like more than 5,000 comments. And, and I also um, felt really shocked um, by the article, but then also realized here I am, a critical media studies scholar who uses Amazon. And I had really all, myself not given a lot of thought to how we could be, you know, have so much selection and particularly how we could get so many things so quickly from Amazon and how I had gone from this almost quirky online bookseller in the 90s, a little bit nerdy, you know, to something that had truly become ubiquitous, um, banal part of everyday life by, I'd say, the mid 2010s and even more so today. Um, so that's um, the moment, I think, when I started to think about Amazon and, and not long after I started to write about it. And, you know, the, the things that struck me at that moment really shaped the project, which is how has Amazon managed to brand its own ubiquity? You know, what are the, the um, techniques and strategies of branding, of the presentation of the company, of the way it forges relationships with users and consumers that are different than the way we've, you know, thought about branding you know, in the past, if we think about the prominent consumer brands of the 20th century, like Coca-Cola, Nike, Disney. Um, so I was interested in, you know, the facts of Amazon's power, but also how it had come to normalize it and really, I think, discourage a lot of scrutiny and attention on it. Because as you've already pointed out, you know, I felt that relative to the other big tech platforms, um, Amazon had been from scholars and the broader public. Indeed. So uh, you speak of uh, Amazon as a brand and one that declares to the world its customer obsession. I really <laughs> find it a bit funny. And uh, having myself worked earlier on branding and on iconic brands such as Harley Davidson, which really create rather well organized brand communities where people are passionately invested in their Harleys and the lifestyle and even tattoo the logo on their arms and backs. Uh, the same goes also for Hells Angels or criminal organizations that have the similar kind of branding power to them. I really enjoyed your reflections on the branding part of Amazon, uh, which uh, obviously is very much the opposite uh, to this model, right? Uh, which has been for long very aspirational. You want it to be like Harley and, and kind of capture the effective uh, powers. Uh, but what you effectively show is that the way Amazon goes about its relational branding, it also creates and generates effective uh, relations, but of kind of different kind and maybe even more powerful. Could you explain what the difference is in this form of relational branding as opposed to this? 
traditional, <laughs> let's say. Yeah, yeah. As you point out, um, you know, a lot of the prominent brands we think of have a lot of symbolic representational content. They offer some kind of identity um, or aspiration. Um, but Amazon, I, I ended up thinking of as, as very much a service brand that has um, forged really affective and even intimate relationships with users through relationship marketing, um, as opposed to the kind of more representational you know, um, forms of advertising and marketing, which of course they also have. But, you know, there, there was a time, you know, earlier in Amazon's history where it actually chose to really scale back on any kinds of uh, um, uh, like the, you know, traditional, say, TV spot advertising or magazine advertising and just put those resources into, um, you know, optimizing the consumer experience, you know, um, so that you not only, you know, make a purchase, but then you, you know, ha you know, you have a good experience before, during and after the um, that purchase. So, you know, in the end, um, Amazon's, you know, brand representational aspects are kind of low key. They're very simple. It's all about you recognize it. You know, yes, there's this, you know, the the arrow, which is like a smile. So that's like we deliver and it'll be you'll be happy. It's a smile. Um, but they don't even lean into that that much. It's very subtle. Um, and so that allows us to all have our own kind of individual relationships with Amazon. Um, so unlike the Harley Davidson communities that you reference, you know, we all might have kind of intense, especially Americans, right, <laughs> might have very intense, you know, relationships with Amazon, but they all might be quite different. You know, we might use Amazon for quite different things. And the, the fact that Amazon is just is focused on that, this idea of service, of customer obsession, of personalization, it's allowed Amazon to be also extremely flexible. So, you know, I think, you know, many brands are associated with with something in particular, right? Like Disney is, you know, um, family, um, you know, fun, entertainment, fantasy. Um, and so it can do things within that semiotic realm. But, you know, it's not going to suddenly start, you know, um, being your supplier of toilet paper, right? <laughs> But Amazon has, you know, does all these different things, you know, like it drops toilet paper off on your doorstep, but it also, you know, provides smart speakers, but it also produces movies, you know, but it also can do cloud storage, um, but it also makes its own electronics. I mean, it's it's got this flexibility, which has allowed it, you know, consumers have been open to it moving into these very seemingly disparate products and services. Right. And returning back to the logic of infrastructural power, you remarked that Amazon is not only one of America's most trusted brands, but it is also ranked as the number two institution in which Americans have the greatest confidence, second only to the military and ahead of all other levels of government, colleges, universities and nonprofits. Throughout the book, you offer in a way a complex explanation as to a how Amazon acquired this position, despite the stream of revelations of bad practices ranging from worker exploitation again to the ways it smartly bypasses untrust, antitrust legislation, paradoxically enough by singing its tune and chanting its mantra of consumer obsession, right? But before we kind of go in deeper into this and to the, into the structure of the book, I would like you to remark on two points which I found particularly interesting. And that was Amazon's willingness to forego profits to establish market dominance 
and the related practices of data exploitation, which go hand in hand with the steady expansion into ever new domains of business. Maybe you could say something about this. I found it particularly interesting how it kind of goes through this willingness to sacrifice profit in order to expand. Yes, I mean, I, I will just say briefly this, um, the statistic about um, Amazon being the second most trusted institution in the United States is from 2018. Um, and it continues to be, that particular survey hasn't been repeated yet. I'm kind of waiting for them to repeat it to see anything change during the pandemic um, when people became more aware, I think, of supply chains and like warehouse workers being essential workers and things of that nature. Um, but other kinds of like market research surveys are similarly find Amazon to be like top five, at least if not number one in terms of most trusted brand. Um, so yeah, the first question about um, playing the long game, um, I think is really key to understanding why Amazon is not just another competitor in the marketplace. Um, and and I think this is a, something that pertains not just to Amazon, but maybe to the idea of tech companies more broadly. Um, and that is that, you know, very early on, you know, Jeff Bezos and, you know, his team realized that, you know, if they wanted to go beyond just being like an online bookseller or even to be really dominant in selling books online, you know, they would need a ton of investment capital um, to really build out, um, you know, to start developing their own distribution infrastructures, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, but, and they were able to attract, you know, really tremendous um, financial investment precisely because their image, the, the definition of what they could say they were to investors was tech company, right? And there, there's been a sense for a long time, and, and, and maybe to some extent it's true, that a tech company can go into any kind of business. And I guess that's particularly true for Amazon precisely because of the brand flexibility we talked about. Um, and so in fact, Amazon did not turn any kind of profit, I wanna say till late 2014 or not, and not consistently until about 2015 or so. So they were growing, um, but they were not profitable for like 20 years, you know? And, and you know, the, Wall Street was fine with this, you know, like it, it's like, no, eventually they're going to make money. And it actually ended up being true. Um, so it's, you know, this is Amazon structurally is able to do things like keep growing, but not be making any money and potentially be losing money um, because of this investment piece. And because of the, the, the um, ideology of the land grab, which is that you need to, um, you know, instead of like the, like the move fast and break things of Mark Zuckerberg, you need to move fast and own things, right? So if you see a market space um, like eBooks or, you know, for example, you, you just throw as much money at it as you can and you, you, um, you come to own so much of that space that, that it's going to be hard for any competitor to come in and be a real competitor. Or if you see, um, you know, for the, the, the very famous example that's often discussed was um, online diaper sales in the United States. And so there was a competitor that was in that business, had got into selling diapers online before Amazon did. And Amazon just was like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna lose tons of, they lost like hundreds of millions, like within, you know, a, a fairly short period of time. 
to undercut um, this competitor on on price, you know, and, and of course, parents are like, oh, look, you can get the diapers so much cheaper on Amazon. And then they essentially it put that company in, in a position where it kind of had to put itself up for sale and Amazon, I, I, I believe, acquired it. So um, this has been um, something that Amazon has really done over and over. Um, when it sees that there are certain products doing well online, um, you know, products perhaps that, you know, because Amazon is a, it's a, it sells its own products as well as, you know, it's a marketplace for third parties to sell their products. And sometimes it sees something that is doing so well. And then it's like, okay, we'll make that too. And it finds a way to, you know, undercut, you know, and of course it has all the business intelligence about, you know, the sales of that product, but it, you know, it can use that strategic intelligence to, to do a lot of what's called loss leading or predatory pricing. Um, and then um, put itself in the lead position potentially for those products. So, um, yeah, this has been a, a strategy, you know, um, like for example, the prime membership, you know, they, that's, you know, you, 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 you pay a certain annual fee to get that free shipping on no matter how much you're, you're, you're buying, pro, you know, how much you're spending on products. You know, I think they lost money on that prime membership for a while, but you know, they needed to get to a place where they had enough prime members and people were locked in enough. That they, they, they could then, you know, increase the price of the prime membership. So, you know, over the years, it's gone from like $75 a year. I think it's 120 now. Um, so, so yeah, that, I think to, that is a part of the um, Amazon strategy. And, and part of why we need to think about why it's not just any other competitor in the marketplace. It has something really distinctive about it. And then your other question was about... Um, data exploitation or that, you know, and I think this is a sort of a key insight um, of theorists of platform capitalism, people like Nick Shrinichek, you know, that we, you know, it seems like, oh, Facebook is a social media company and Google's a search company and um, uh, Amazon is an e-commerce company. But they, what they have in common is that they are the most valuable um, commodity, commodity that they have is data. Um, and that, and it's not an accident actually that all three of those companies are um, a huge part of their business and profits. Um, I mean, almost all for Facebook, but increasingly for Amazon as well as digital advertising. Hmm. So Amazon, of course, since the very beginning has been very savvy about collecting lots of data, not just what you buy, but what you look at where you click, how much time you spend on a page. Um, now it can collect information from voice because people are using Alexa um, or smartwatches that they talk to. Um, and so they, you know, they don't give that data away. Um, and I think it's quite, you know, given the name of your um, podcast, it's quite black boxed, right? It's hard for us to truly know what they really know, what they can get out of that data. But what we understand of what they can do with it is A, move faster and faster into um, digital advertising, making what's currently a duopoly in the digital ad business of Google and Facebook. It's quickly becoming a triopoly with Amazon's becoming a very competitive um, in that space and identify, um, you know, again, kind of hoard, you know, competitive business advantage, competitive business intelligence so they can understand, you know, um, what consumers are interested in, what motivates them, where sales seem to be happening, where new trends are, 
Um, and because they sort of are the marketplace in terms of e-commerce to some extent, um, it just gives them this like unprecedented advantage in terms of business intelligence. <coughs> Indeed. So uh, you divide this book into three sections, uh, distribution, culture, and image. Maybe you could briefly address the structure. I found it pretty well done <laughs> and, and kind of uh, reflect on the key argument behind each section before we kind of go deeper. So just very briefly. Sure. Yeah. So I start with distribution because um, I think that's the kind of company Amazon is. It, it just it distributes stuff and it, and it distributes entertainment and information. Um, and it's, um, you know, I, I, it's control of those forms of distribution and also the um, seamlessness and speed, right, with which it um, delivers goods is really key to its business, its identity to the value that um, consumers see in it. So I wanted to understand, think about Amazon as a distribution brand, um, which is also right a type of service. And then the culture section thinks about um, the, the role that um, Amazon plays in shaping our mental environment, um, in the kinds of um, meaningful interactions we have day to day, whether that's with you know, the books that we can buy um, and whether physical books or eBooks, and thinking about that also as the, um, you know, the origin point of Amazon is online book selling. Um, thinking also about it as a distributor of, of entertainment, um, you know, uh, whether that's music, but especially streaming video, and that being another way that Amazon and Prime Video become kind of prominent in our in our minds in our daily lives. And then especially Alexa um, and the idea of smart speakers and the sort of um, focus on personalization that Amazon um, has, you know, really, you know, owned to some extent in the, you know, digital economy and e-commerce space. So that's culture. Um, and then I end on image and that's thinking about the way that Amazon presents itself, um, encourages consumers, but also uh, policymakers and regulators to think about it. So some of its rhetorical strategies, the way that intersects with the types of um, regulation that it's trying to avoid or preempt. Um, and then I also wanted to get, you know, most of the book, frankly, is focused on the US because that's where Amazon is based. That's its most, the market in which it's most dominant. But I was interested in the way in which Amazon is now trying, you know, pursuing its goals of platform imperialism. So are those presentation of self strategies, branding strategies, the same in these international markets that it moves into? Or how is it, how is it different to, you know, move into these new markets um, and compete with, you know, homegrown e-commerce and other types of competitors? Brilliant. So this being said, uh, we turn to the first point, that's the distribution brand. Um, and you you really nicely show how while Amazon is different, uh, it also builds on a on a on historical predecessors uh, to this kind of form of business. Um, and I was particularly intrigued by the similarities and differences between Amazon and this Sears and also Walmart, and the power and the power shift from manufacturers to distributors and to those who hold monopolies on market information, as you just said, all this business intelligence and so forth, and thus get the power to set the terms to manufacturers and even kind of legislate uh, key components of American social and industrial policy, really. And for our European listeners, I think you could maybe say a few words about the history of Sears and, and Walmart. It's not terribly familiar here. And the pearls that you, that you kind of pull out and the differences. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, Sears may not be familiar. It, it, it I, I saw it as very similar to Amazon because it, it, um, whereas Jeff Bezos started with a single product, which was selling books and an, a new infrastructure, which was the internet. Um, Richard Sears started with a single product, which was selling watches through a catalog and the, you know, maybe not brand new, but the very relevant infrastructure of the day, which was the railroad. So they both kind of um, saw this unique opportunity. And then just as Amazon has kind of become the everything store, so did Sears move, you know, steadily over, you know, a, a number of years from um, this, you know, catalog watch company that had certain strategies for getting people to trust sending their money off, you know, and that a watch would actually come to, um, you know, this catalog that, you know, anyone anywhere living in the United States, even in very rural areas, could have this catalog full of so many products, and then could, you know, initially, you know, write off you know, through the mail to get these things delivered. And then that ended up expanding. Sears basically became a very large, um, you know, ubiquitous department store, but also always had this catalog shopping aspect of it. To, so to that extent, it is a kind of precursor to like Amazon is the electronic, you know, um, catalog shopping. Um, and they both, you know, just as Amazon feels like almost like utility-like in nature now, um, so was Sears seen that way, like just like an institution, you know, um, that, you know, could help you out maybe in some way, um, you know, so I think that there's these um, interesting parallels and Sears, you know, then really struggled with the rise of the big box store and did not make a good transition to e-commerce. And I think got too identified with a particular target segment of like middle-class Americans. And of course the middle-class has shrunk. So this is why we no longer really talk about Sears, but it's a really relevant historical precursor. And Walmart is one of those aforementioned big box stores and it um, you know, arose I think in the mid 20th century and um, has just been, you know, it's a, it's a large big box discount retailer. Um, it's really, its focus has been low prices, you know, finding ways to pay its employees as little as possible, often by never letting them work up to full time so they won't qualify for benefits. That's been one of Walmart's famous strategies. Um, but it also has become very ubiquitous. It'll be like even quite small towns will have a Walmart. It, it's the largest grocer. I think it's the largest retailer in, retailer in the world. It it by it's a owns a huge percentage of like brick and mortar retail here in the United States. Um, so it you know way more than like Amazon has. Whereas with e-commerce, it's flipped. You know Amazon owns a lot and Walmart way less. Um, so I think the parallels there are the exact, exactly what you referenced earlier, like the, um, the shift in power from manufacturers to, to, to retailers and distributors. Well, you know, just as Amazon has so much market intelligence about e-commerce, so did Walmart er very early get into computing to, um, you know, really understand what was being bought in their stores to then like, you know, tell you know manufacturers like hey this is what you should be making now because this is what we believe we'll be selling or hey you know you sell the vast majority of your products in walmart stores you can't afford to lose our business we want the package to be this big we want it to look like that you know we want it in this color so that's you know what's meant by kind of moving from a um 
a, a push to a pull economy and thinking about Walmart almost as, as a de facto manufacturer, even though it doesn't make anything because it is in a position to dictate so many terms to so many manufacturers. And Walmart's also a really interesting precursor for Amazon because it understood the power of logistics very early. So that it, it was all about getting the right products in the right store at the right time and using all this computing to do a lot of prediction. And in fact, in the early days, Amazon poached tons of logistics executives to help it think about how to, to set up its own you know, distribution centers, its own warehouses. Um, so I think that that's, um, you know, those are some of the parallels. Walmart continues, of course, to be a competitor um, of Amazon. Um, it's trying its best to grow in e-commerce. It's still a very far, far second to Amazon in e-commerce. Um, but of course, it's, you know, it, it owns a ton of retail in general in the United States. Hmm. You speak here also of the shift from digital capitalism to platform capitalism and the obsession with minimizing friction and and wasted moments and with acceleration and seamlessness all in the name of speeding up the circuit of capital and the role of information in all this again. Um, so you write that Amazon knows more about who buys manufacturers products and under what conditions than the manufacturers themselves do and will make this data available only to a limited extent and at a considerable price. Uh, this consumer and transactional data that Amazon mines gives it then this unmatched and time-sensitive market intelligence at the same time as it can target advertising, decide which products to push on the first page and so forth, and indeed with profound consequences. Um, and so one could ask also, you mentioned all of this, so it's just a bit of a summing up, but what what kind of power does actually lurk behind this buy now button that and this kind of one click uh, thing and what all goes into nudging us towards that button right how do we get to push it <laughs> and I, i'm kind of hinting more at the kind of materialities at the infrastructure that is kind of behind all of that one thing is the data but what what how right how how is it actually this kind of logistical uh, things that are kind of hiding behind these digital products and the, the materiality that we kind of typically ignore. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple ideas there I, I, I could pick up on. I mean, one is, um, yeah, so the title of my book um, is Buy Now, which is um, an actual button on some product pages. Um, and this was, um, I mean, in general, Amazon has always been interested in you know, removing any friction in the process of consumption. Um, so, you know, that is, of course, about, you know, having the products show up even quicker, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but um, but also even from the consumer end, like even something that, you know, that would seem easy, like doing a few clicks to get to the point where you can buy something, Amazon has recognized, oh, no, that's actually a pain point for the consumer pain point, I'm going to put in quotation air quotes for the benefit of your listeners, um, you know, and, um, or just a moment where someone might hesitate or have a second thought. So the idea of having, being able to buy with one click was a, you know, an idea from a number of years ago now that they actually patented with the, you know, with the U.S. Patent Office, which was seen as like absolutely outrageous by other e-commerce companies, but it flew, like they accepted the patent. So other companies could not um allow people to buy with just one click for a number of years um so it's something that it just makes it you know buying so easy you know it, as long as you've got your information your shipping your your credit card already 
stored with Amazon. You have an account, you can buy a thing with one click, but it's a disciplinary mechanism for sellers as well. So basically to, to win the buy box, you know, and to, so that someone can buy with one click. And so it seems like the most, um, like that's the company you should buy that product from. You need to, you know, have a really good record, a sales record, like very few returns. Your product always needs to be in stock, but there shouldn't be too much of it. You, you know, the price needs to be right. So it, Amazon, you know, it's a, it's a disciplinary mechanism for sellers. So sellers will always be hustling and competing against each other to win this buy box. And this is, you know, of a piece with all these different aspects of the Amazon user experience that make shopping, you know, as easy as possible. Like now we have subscriptions in the United States, so you can just program something to show up every month or every three months. And with Alexa, you can buy something completely hands-free. You know, you don't even have to tap anything. Um, so that's the kind of making it seamless from the consumer end. And then in terms of the materiality of it, yeah, there, this is something that Amazon doesn't really want us to think about that much, but it's really tremendous. The um, resources, the, the physical infrastructure, the, um, you know, intense focus on, you know, removing time from any moment to any other moment within this distribution process. So, you know, you can tour now these Amazon fulfillment centers um, and which is just one stage, by the way, of the whole supply chain distribution process. Um, but, you know, in the tours that I took, it really blew me away how much computing, how many machines, you know, how much organization of like, you know, armies of people, how much space was being devoted essentially just to get products from the trucks that they came from, from the manufacturers or wholesalers to the truck that would then go to another place where it would then get, end up on some kind of van or smaller truck. Um, you know, the effort that goes into that, um, the, you know, the electricity, the, everything that is just one piece of making those one or two day shipping promises possible is truly mind blowing. And the ways in which that's sort of out of sight, out of mind, um, and that we're not really encouraged to dwell on it, I think of as this like distribution fetishism, like just focus on the magic of the box that shows up on your doorstep, not all that it took to allow that box to be there. Yeah, this is really a great concept. Maybe you want to explain it more if... Yeah. Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm sure your listeners are very aware of Marx's <laughs> concept of commodity fetishism, so obviously I'm just stealing it. Um, <laughs> but to point out that, um, you know, that, uh, you know, Amazon, which is one of the most market capitalized companies in the world, you know, yes, it makes some things, but its primary business is distribution. And so the way in which we're, you know, the, the, the processes, the labor that goes into the, the materiality of distribution is mystified to us. And, and, you know, and that it's not an accident, right? That Amazon actually also encourages this, um, encourages us just to think about our relationship with time, like how quickly something will get to us. Um, and th the fact of its magic appearance, you, you know, here you'll start getting alerts about your package when it's literally a few stops away. Right. But the rest of all that process is, is, is downplayed. It's not, you know, opened up. You're not, it's, you're not communicated to about it. Um, so, you know, it, it's about, I guess our alien alienation as consumers from this whole, 
um, distribution supply chain, um, the fact of it, um, the people who work in it, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, turning a bit back to the question of governance and standard setting, I was kind of struck by the example you give of this frustration-free packaging uh, and the kind of certification regimes that go with it. I mean, it's, it's yeah, I mean, there's just something that could be said about this frustration-free, I think. It's, it's kind yes. of a concept, yeah. Yeah. So frustration-free packaging, it's it's kind of a couple of things bundled into one. I mean, I guess one is that Amazon was getting complaints from consumers about how hard it was to open certain things that arrived. Um, so not so much the Amazon box, but like the product itself would be sort of overpackaged. And there's kind of a reason for that, which is that um, a lot of products are um, designed to be tamper-proof or um, steel proof, I guess, for physical stores. And so they'll be really like completely enclosed in some kind of plastic that you need scissors to open, for example. Um, and so, you know, sellers were, you know, sending off the packages that were designed for the shelf to then be sold as e-commerce. And so that it's both frustrating for the consumer and it's, you know, arguably overpackaged in terms of, and that's an environmental concern. It may also add to the weight um you know etc so it the, the consumer facing side of this is that we have a program called frustration free packaging and so it should be less frustrating to open and this is all the um you know packaging we've saved from landfills or it's less plastic so it's kind of a pr campaign on the consumer end but on the um uh the seller end there's a very strict set of um packaging certifications. So if you want to sell through Amazon, there's different tiers that you can aim for. I think, you know, the, the sort of the highest tier would be considered frustration free, but also to even like, you know, um, to, to sell it all through Amazon, you're going to have to qualify for one of these tiers. Now, Amazon is not technically the organization that certifies this packaging. There's a I'm going to use air quotes again, <laughs> um, independent, you know, um, uh, certification organization, but it's very clear that um, all it does is it takes the rules that Amazon has come up with, which really make Amazon's life easier, make sure there's fewer complaints, makes it, these things easier and lighter to put in boxes, but simultaneously makes sure that they, these things arrive not broken, right? Um, and they're, they're just implementing the standards and certifications that Amazon has come up with. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a, a very, it's a very niche, you know, industry, right, that supports our whole e-commerce situation. But, you know, what I've discovered is that the, the packaging industry is quite annoyed, right, because they, they essentially are like, Amazon is just telling us what we have to do, like telling us what kind of boxes we have to make. And, um, and, and maybe this should be more of a conversation. And so they're, they're doing a lot of like, organizing amongst themselves to try to somewhat balance out the, the power relations in that situation. Hmm. Yeah, and this uh, frustration-free packaging actually made me think about the, the, the resistance of luxury brands to sell on Amazon, which you mentioned, right? Because luxury branding and luxury goods rely to a really large degree precisely on actually excessive packaging in both material and symbolic terms, right? 
And uh, this is in a way where their power lies. So the frustration of luxury packaging is also where the pleasure for the consumer resides. Um, and then it made me think of this kind of frustration-free packaging actually instead uh, in terms of kind of robbing all of the other brands of their power, reducing mm -hmm. them to certain just mere objects, right? Uh, and while stealing in a way that kind of brand power and projecting it instead on Amazon, right? So I was thinking if you have given some thought to this kind of more libidinal <laughs> economy of, of this frustration-free packaging, right? Or, or brand economy. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the, yeah, again, you know, this is part of the um, the shift from the power of the manufacturer or the product brand to the distribution brand. And I think Amazon actually does a number of things to make sure that it has the primary brand relationship with the user, right? Like, you know, so you think, oh, I got it on Amazon, right? You know, this is a thing I got from Amazon. Maybe you think more about the Amazon piece of it than the um, product brand piece of it. Um, and so this is, it's both a challenge for like new brands that are trying to break through and like register with the consumer. Like, oh, you know, we're the brand that sold you this thing. And it's, you know, very, very frustrating. And in fact, a deal breaker for the, the really big brands that already have a lot of brand equity with consumers. They, they hate that they're going to be, you know, on some product search page, just cheek by jowl with other brands that, you know, are like, you know, just sort of uh, pretenders or, you know, like kind of copycats or, um, you know, very cheap brands compared to what they have. Um, and also they hate the idea that their product would show up just in a regular Amazon box. And they hate the fact that they can't actually you know, basically, if you have a question or an issue with your product, you you talk to Amazon, right? And and Amazon has actually kind of disintermediates even the communication between um, the uh, the shopper and the the product brand. So um, Amazon is you know tr trying to have that primary, trying to own the customer, if you will, in a, in a whole variety of ways. And and, I, and you know exactly that's why. Luxury brands, you know, they could benefit in some ways from the fact that so many people shop on Amazon, but then it's a real trade-off. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I was thinking of turning a bit to the to the kind of productivity and surveillance of the workers in the centers, and I particularly like this remark uh, of yours on the way the the robot or the machine has become the kind of aspirational model for human employment where people are to be programmable, never sick and never requiring rest and so forth. And you mentioned you were on these guided tours and I just wanted to ask in terms of workers, uh, what could you see, what were, what was hidden and what was not being uh, revealed in, the, in those kind of publicity tours? Yes, I mean, I did a couple of them and, and so I could pick up how carefully choreographed they are. Of course, you know, they're in particular centers at particular times. Um, you know, there's a, a person at the front of the tour and the back of the tour who's like the shepherd to make sure no one gets lost um, and wanders off. Um, and I, to be fair, I, th I thought that we actually saw most of the process. Um, we didn't see them unloading from the trucks because that's where there's hard hats and I guess it's, it's not quite as safe. But um, we saw all the other processes and some of the workers we kind of got close to, like the, the people who are doing the sorting. So taking, you know, um, you know, a whole bunch of products and, and, and putting them into these shelves um, or, um, or, or pickers, like, you know, a, a shelf comes to them, by the way, on a robot, and then they pick certain products. Um, and so we could almost like, you know, maybe be like six, 
feet away or so and like look over their shoulder, but they are just in a interaction with a computer screen that's telling them exactly what to do when, and they're literally like kind of marking each moment, right? Like, oh, you pick up a product, you scan it, you put it down, you press the button to confirm you did it. You know, I mean, that just over and over again, no choice, right? Like, oh, I think I'll get this next. No, I mean, every moment is dictated by the, the um, you know, the the productivity software, the, the computer. And then similarly, we saw Packers. Um, again, they're just being told, oh, pick this box. Now put these products in, everything is scanned at every moment. Um, so, you know, we spent maybe at most a minute, maybe two minutes or so watching any given human task. Um, but there was no doubt that on these tours, you know, yes, the people are there. Um, and maybe a little bit, you know, they talked a lot about the benefits, like, you know, the, Amazon keeps rolling out benefits, um, like new benefits for fulfillment center workers in the United States to kind of get ahead of the critiques of how bad the work is. And I think to try to preempt unionization. So they talked a lot about that, but, um, other than that, the stars of the show were the either the robots, which of course are kind of flashy, or the um, the software. You know, like like isn't it amazing the software can do this? You know, um, how quickly it can it can blow out um, uh, a sticker that has the address, you know, onto the right box at the right time. I mean, it is incredibly fast. You know, or all the conveyor belts that just you know automatically know where to push um, these packages. So it was it was a sort of a uh, a tour of technological feats w that happened to have some people in it. You know, that was sort of um, the sense that you got, I got from it anyway. Yeah, right. Um, I think that this surveillance of workers is matched on the consumer side by surveillance as service, right? This is what you write about. And we have this kind of notorious Alexa and much more, which is resulting in the normalization of surveillance, in surveillance realism and in the digital and the privacy resignation and these technologies are again being embraced by consumers very often despite knowing well that Alexa listens and that everything is recorded and then feeds into all sorts of predictive modeling and machine learning and so forth and can even be reviewed by humans and that Amazon partners with police departments and so forth but the many seem uh, willing and enthusiastic participants both as architects and subjects of surveillance and uh, and so this ubiquity of Amazon uh, is matched by the ubiquity of surveillance, both as product management tool and uh, I think increasingly also preferred policy solution to crime, security and so forth. Could you say more about uh, this kind of dynamics of Amazon and surveillance? Yeah, so one of the um, phrases that you mentioned that I, I use in the book is um, surveillance as a service. And so I think this was just one of the things that struck me in looking um, not just an Alexa, but even the history of Amazon, um, you know, basically presenting to the user, like, we're going to watch what you buy, we're going to watch what you look at, and um, we're going to take that information and make shopping even easier, more pleasurable for you. And I think in the last few years with Alexa and, and um, other related services, um, like kind of smart home services that we have now, um, you know, they're, they're beta testing, um, a domestic robot now called Astro that will go around the house and do little things for you and check on things for you. Um, so yeah, again, it, it's less about hiding the fact that they're, um, going to be watching us and more like really trying to domesticate it. And, and, um, 
I think leverage that trust that we talked about that people have for Amazon as a brand to say, we're not just, you can't, you don't just have to trust us to drop packages off on your doorstep. You can trust us to be in your home. And, um, uh, and you know, you, I, I, you know, the, it's a trade-off, but I think it's even less a transactional trade-off and more of a relationship, right? Like, like we're going to get to know you, you know, and, and not hide it. Alexa will remember your name. Alexa will recall something you did before. Alexa is very, is going to very, um, explicitly, um, be a companion, a help meet, uh, an assistant in the home. And so I think that builds a kind of familiarity, a comfort and intimacy. Um, and it's obviously worked, right? At least for huge percentages of consumers, like the Echo smart speaker, the adoption rate has been unbelievable. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of smart speakers, you know, Alexa is like by far the leading, you know, voice assistant. Um, obviously not used as much on things like mobile phones, where I think the way people use that is quite different. Hmm. Um, you know, the Alexa is the sort of always on listening device, you know, that is always ready, you know, to to respond. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think it's about, um, as you say, normalization, um, building that comfort. And then, you know, it, it's it, one, one wonders, you know, how far it can go, like what, how intimate you know, um, and how um, how integrated into people's lives those services are that Amazon will be able to offer and that people will accept. Um, so, so yeah, that that's my um, my general thoughts about um, again this this surveillance being a service, not being something that's that's hidden, um, but that's that's being offered, and 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 then also. Um, also, it normalizes the requirement, the need, you know, so I see that with um, this new uh, robot that's being um, tested. Um, it's this idea that, oh, you know, the, the home is not a safe place or like there could be all these unexpected things like it kind of promotes this idea of like, well, we need this constant visibility. We need this level of control. Um, and so, and it aligns, I think the consumer with Amazon to be like, well, you know, Amazon's just helping me watch my space. It's helping me, you know, keep an eye on my um, doorstep with the ring doorbell, for example. So it, it interpolates us also as surveillers. Yeah, right. And transforms this control into a form of care and surveillance into a kind of caring relation, right? This is kind of fascinating. And so you develop um, building on this, this notion of the served self, as opposed to the kind of choosing customer. I really like that part uh, because Amazon in a way chooses uh, on our behalf uh, your, and then relieves us of the burdens of choice. Uh, and I think uh, Amazon here betrays the structure of interpassivity, uh, where you know it delegates the pleasures of choosing to Amazon. You delegate or we delegate it. And Amazon, in a sense, enjoys on our behalf. And this shift from consumer choice, which has often been imagined as even a political act, right, to the third self uh, is actually quite striking. And I think it may well match the kind of apolitical technocratic nature of both platform capitalism and current politics. Uh, yeah, maybe uh, maybe you could expand on this concept. I found is really was really interesting this served self notion, and it, I think it goes mm -hmm. for many kind of phenomena that we see in society, not only in case of Amazon. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, this broader issue of um, dealing with info glut, you know, like too much abundance, too much choice. 
um, I guess creates a kind of problem that Amazon comes in is very happy to solve, you know, and, and it can be something as banal as, you know, oh, Amazon will kind of, first of all, it ranks, obviously, you know, your, your product searches, which is, um, you know, part of nudging you towards certain choices, but it'll even within any search have an Amazon's choice you know, it provides a kind of shortcut, like, oh, you know, you can't be bothered to like look through all these. Why don't you just pick the one that we've already think is the best? Um, but beyond that, of course, um, you know, Alexa is a great example because if you ask Alexa for something, you know, it won't list all the options. That's very unwieldy with voice. It'll make some some choices for you. And and you know, this is true obviously with within all the kinds of recommendations that Amazon is doing across streaming, um, you know, in you know various communications it has with you. So I, I think the the fact that Amazon is, operates in so many products and services and is you know even with Alexa now it's saying we're not just going to respond to requests we want to start anticipating them i mean that's what they're the executives of alexa are saying like we want to let you know about problems you didn't know you had um you know you know we want to suggest things to you you know um so yeah it's absolutely this it, it's both the kind of saving the consumer the labor of choice selection etc um but also um creating yeah the care and the, and maybe almost the, the luxuriousness of that kind of service relationship you know like you don't need to be constantly looking at multiple platforms or multiple service providers you can do it all within amazon it's pleasurable it's easy um you have a sense that amazon you know will, will look out for you if it's if it's you know going out of its way to solve problems you didn't know you had like I, I think I really thought of this in a moment where I, uh, I'd returned something that hadn't been received the refund yet. And Amazon had reached out to say, we noticed you didn't get your refund. You know, like it, it, it's like, you know, it's not, they're not just going to sell me something. They're going to have this whole service experience. Um, so, yeah. And I think, I, I think it is potentially um, significant because there, there is a kind of um, parallelism between you know, the choosing subject as citizen, the choosing subject as consumer, and the way that we use choice to pursue self-interest or shape the world for the better or exercise agency in both realms. But now in the, the consumption realm and, and perhaps in, in digital services more broadly, there is this move towards just, just build a relationship with a kind of overall service provider and then, you know, leave the hard stuff to them. Um, and, and so I, I, it, I think it raises questions for me about consumer subjectivity and the ways in which that spills over into other domains. Hmm. Yeah. So from the notion of served self, we can move into the logic of media as a service and the logic of subscription and the ways consumers are being kind of sucked into the Amazon ecosystem and enclosed in it. And, uh, you know, I was familiar with this prime, maybe the kindle and maybe video i never had amazon subscriptions <laughs> but then there was this gaming music and and twitch and all these uh, things so i i got kind of overwhelmed and and it's and it's actually yeah really interesting how they managed to commoditize both media and culture and at the same time kind of convince you that you really don't want to own anything you just want to rent it and you want to be on the platform and the platform, in a way, ends up owning you and your data about what you're doing on it, right? So uh, it's just an extremely bad deal, and 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 yet people keep on subscribing. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and of course, that's a logic that Amazon has really embraced. Um, but it, it you know exceeds Amazon, right? So now we're, um, yeah, we're, you know, it's it's a great deal potentially for these companies that, that there's that predictability of a monthly fee, you know, and you know they just need to give you enough to you know variety or pleasure, you know, with with the thing that you're subscribing to that you don't consider um, canceling. Right. So that's a kind of different sort of logic than, you know, you're providing things that are so compelling that people will choose to, you know, buy a ticket or to actually own it. Um, and, and yeah, and then along with that comes the, you know, the, um, the data commodities, which, you know, can be involved, you know, what did you choose to watch? How much of it did you choose to watch? What times of day do you watch? Um, if we're, th if we're thinking about video, for example. Um, so yeah, I think about the prime membership and the way so much stuff is bundled within it, um, as, um, you know, kind of, you know, you can leave, you can get things elsewhere, but it, you know, there's, it, there's just a sort of a disincentive to do so. It's like this pleasure garden of, um, um, amusements and diversions and they'll emphasize some shiny things that are like really appealing but also just a sense of abundance like hey there's a lot there's a lot of ebooks you can read there's a lot of music that you can choose from there's a lot of shows you know included in prime video so you know that's how i think too about not just the commodification of you know culture of entertainment but the commoditization of it like we're going to sell this to you you know by volume there's going to be so much of it you know, why would you ever want to cancel your subscription? Um, um, and so it, these things just become part of what Amazon calls the, their moat. So they think about um, uh, the prime membership, you know, as and, and prime members spend way more on Amazon than like other people. So they, they, they think about building up the moat around the prime membership so that people will, you know, not want to in some ways not be able to leave it. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And you also mentioned this X-ray function, which I did not know about, which makes things uh, shoppable from the, yeah. from the, yeah, maybe you could just say something about that. I mean, I found this kind of uh, uh, a yeah. bit strange and alienating. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, X-ray is interesting. It's actually like something that um, originated and it, it's making basically cultural content kind of interactive in a way. So it started with eBooks. So you could click on a word or a character or something in your eBook. And then this X-ray technology, again, with air quotes, pops up to give you a definition or to tell you more about it. Um, and so then they translated that to their screened entertainment, which means that if you, um, you know, click on, on video, you know, while you're watching it, you can find out about, well, who are the stars in this? What's playing on the soundtrack? Originally, you know, a kind of a common thing then is that you could like click on the actor and then go to IMDb, which Amazon owns, by the way, not everybody knows that, um, and learn about what else the actor's been in, or click on the soundtrack piece and go to the album, you know, on Amazon where you could buy it. But Amazon's also been, you know, experimenting with this, you know, making screened entertainment truly shoppable, which has been long been a goal of, um, you know, producers of entertainment you know, and they did this with their, um, with their fashion reality show where, you know, they, in, in fact, for the dresses that were produced for the show as part of the competition, they actually produced them. And then when you saw the winning dress, you could click on it. And, and then like literally one more click takes you the pro to the product page where you can buy it. 
Um, so I don't know how widely Amazon's going to end up um, uh, rolling this out to their original shows on Prime Video. Um, but I think it's just an example of like the kinds of synergies that a company can have when they're operating in, you know, what on the surface seem like disparate products and services like, oh, original entertainment and then selling stuff on an e-commerce platform. But there's clearly so much um, opportunity for synergy there. Yeah, right. It's all hyperlinked. <laughs> Yes. So yeah. So throughout the book, it becomes then very clear that Amazon normalizes and naturalizes monopoly. No less true, it's often ecological metaphors that promote particular structures of feeling. And uh, maybe you could tell us more about the metaphors that Amazon lives by and structures our lives by, and what we can do to denaturalize them. Yes. Yeah, so um, uh, I mean, just the name of the company itself. You know, you, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why um, Jeff Bezos picked it, including the fact that it started with the letter A, which at the time seemed like some kind of advantage. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's a naturalistic metaphor to the Amazon River and River Basin, which, you know, largest river in the world. You can see it from space and, you know, uh, uh, maybe not so much now, but, um, you know, in the early years, Amazon really leaned into that, you know like just as Amazon is the you know biggest river in the world, so is, um, you know, they wanted to be Earth's biggest bookstore. You know, that was one of their early taglines um, or, you know, Earth's biggest selection. Um, so there's a kind of, you know, it, it kind of, um, it, just the name of the company implicitly makes a kind of argument for the scale of it. Um, and um, interestingly, Amazon, you know, won the top level domain dot Amazon a number of years ago, which I don't think it's using yet, but you know, may in the future and, you know, had to like um, convince ICANN, you know, the organization that, that gives that out, that it should have it over um, countries that are in the actual Amazon river basin. So I think there's a kind of way in which, um, you know, Amazon is um, taking over, um, you know, what was the original inspiration for it? it's, um, its uh, company name. Um, now, it, it's very common, obviously, throughout tech to use the terms um, cloud and ecosystem. And I think, you know, part of what I look at in this chapter is um, uh, how Amazon uses, in particular, the word ecosystem to um, naturalize its scale um, to sort of you know, it, it uses the term, encourages journalists and policymakers to use the term, perhaps even users, and to, to suggest that, you know, the scale and the array of things are, are harmonious, that they're going to um, support thriving and growth and sustainability. Um, so, you know, they use it actually in a lot of different ways. Like sometimes it's like, a marketplace of businesses that are all working in a certain business area. Sometimes it's to say, oh, well, there's just so much, um, all the content that you can get on Amazon. It's like an ecosystem of content. So, um, you know, it, it also uses a lot of natural um, imagery and even, you know, focuses on that in its architecture. So, um, you know, both Amazon headquarters in Seattle and the headquarters they're building in um, Virginia, they have these buildings that feature lots of plants, cloud forest plants. So, you know, the, it's, it's all about, I think, appropriating nature, which, of course, um, as a highly, you know, resource and energy intensive company, it, it plays a role in 
damaging um, to say, you know, to make an implicit argument over and over, you know, in a banal everyday way that it, you know, its size, its scale, its in level of integration um, is natural, um, but not just natural as something that, you know, will support life, um, you know, is sustainable. They don't actually spell those things out necessarily, but when you use that language over and over that, you know, you, you and especially if we, you know, adopt it as well, we're kind of doing their work for them. Yeah, right. Yeah, you also speak of the tech monopolies untouched by the antitrust legislation, referring to Lena Kant and Frank Pascal's work as well. And for those uh, unfamiliar with the US legal context, maybe you could explain why the antitrust legislation fails to tackle this form of monopolization and what are the current developments in the regulatory field? Yeah, so um, essentially there was uh, for quite a, many, quite a few decades in the United States, the dominance of what was called the Chicago School view of anti antitrust, you know, based on um, econ economists at, at the University of Chicago. and you know, they, they wanted to, you know, in contrast to some of the big antitrust um, actions, you know, earlier, like against like standard oil or railroads, you know, this would be earlier in the 20th century, they wanted to narrow the idea of when antitrust, you know, action was necessary to the idea of consumer welfare. And so then you didn't have to look so much at the whole structure of the market, or what kinds of what kinds of ways a dominant player was using its power. The only question you had to ask was, will prices go up? Okay. And as we've already talked about, you know, Amazon, and this may be, you know, relevant to, you know, some of the other um, uh, players in big tech, very happy to keep prices very low um, and perhaps even artificially low for extended periods in order to, you know, um, control larger and larger parts of the market. So um, I think we are seeing a shift right now. Um, so we've, you know, there were hearings a couple of years ago um, that um, you know, were quite prominent in Congress. And now we have a, a series of legislation that's being looked at. And this summer, they're going to be looking at um, legislation against, essentially against self-preferencing. So recognizing that um, essentially being the marketplace um, you know, puts a, a company like Amazon in the position to preference their own products. Um, or if you're Google, preference your own services, say within search. For Amazon, preference your own products within search or make sure that your own products are more visible on the page or are going to get better reviews or use market intelligence in a way against what are essentially your own customers as well, which are third party sellers. So that's, I think, a movement in the right direction. We now have people in place like Lena Khan, who you mentioned, is um, you know, chair of the Federal Trade Commission, um, uh, Tim Wu, you know, who's a really prominent, um, you know, coined net neutrality, for example, um, works in the in the Biden White House. Um, so people are in place, there's some movement. Um, and I think recognition within those spaces of, of, again, you don't just look at the different things that market that Amazon functions in, and say, oh, it, ha it owns a grocery store chain. Let's just look at like, its control of grocery compared to other grocers. Okay, now let's look at its control of eBooks. Let's compare that to other eBook sellers. You know, you have to understand Amazon as a, as a whole marketplace, the synergies it has across its products and services and the control of data it has. So I don't know that all the legislation that's proposed fully gets at that. 
fully gets at the advantage of being sort of the marketplace, fully gets at the idea of the advantages you have of being the lead cloud service, the lead smart speaker voice assistant, you know, having maybe more than 50% of e-commerce. I think the understanding, you know, those, the significance of those integrations, like the vertical integrations and the horizontal integrations isn't fully reflected yet in the legislation we've seen in the United mm -hmm. States, but we are seeing some movement um, in terms of not just saying, oh, hooray, big tech are some of the most successful companies on the, you know, on the global markets and they're American and, oh, we're just so proud of Silicon Valley. I mean, I think that was a real ethos and I think it has switched and, they're, they're beginning with what are the clear abuses, I think, of the power of platforms. Hmm. Yeah, and so the last chapter of your book, as you mentioned already in the beginning, is dedicated to platform imperialism and the way Amazon has tried to expand globally. Um, so what is platform imperialism and how does it work out for Amazon, for instance, in countries like India, Canada, China? You can just choose an example that you find most interesting. and. Uh, how does Amazon go about building a global empire in an age of platform capitalism? And how does it view uh, regulators and politicians? I found it particularly interesting. How does it kind of try to penetrate these different markets? Yeah, so the concept of platform imperialism comes from uh, Dal Jongin at, um, at um, Simon Fraser University. And so this is the idea, obviously, of, of um, instead of like cultural imperialism, which has been long debated in the field of communication, you know, just noting um, the ways in which these tech platforms have rolled out globally, the kind of um, different kinds of um, power they have specifically as platforms, you know, and so rapidly, right, that they've, you know, moved around the world um, and achieved some kind of dominance. Um, so I, I, I think about that as a kind of provocation for thinking about Amazon, but also note that um, I don't want to overstate and say that Amazon is a platform imperialist power. I sort of see that more as its aspiration. It sees a lot of, you know, Amazon always wants to be growing, right? I mean, it needs to in order to continue to attract all that investment capital. You know, it's starting to achieve more saturation here in the United States. So for a long time now, it's always been looking for the most profitable, likely, you know, international markets to continue that growth. It's really important to note that, um, you know, this is a very uneven um, process. You know, there are some markets in which it's made a lot of progress, others not so much. Um, unsurprisingly, like it's basically not in China and that's, you know, to do with the dominance of its own platforms and its state policies. You know, it's in a real fight with um, competitors, including, you know, um, you know, China's Alibaba, which, you know, you know, has acquired a platform in um, India and it's in, um, a, you know, sort of a competitive situation, but has made a ton of progress in India. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's it uses a lot of different strategies. It, it often starts um, by offering it's more digital um, services like Prime Video, for example, and kind of gets that to hook people in the platform and, and then maybe moves into um, building up distribution infrastructure that can allow it to provide a kind of fast shipping promise in terms of e-commerce. So it, yeah, it, 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 it encounters different um, regulatory environments um, around the world. Um, so I'm from Canada, so, um, you know, it, Interestingly, Canada was not, you know, one of the um, 
uh, it was early, but not the first, you know, I think it was in the UK and Japan and Germany, even before it went into Canada. Um, but that's because Canada had very um, strict rules around, um, you know, e external companies coming in and setting up shop, um, especially a company that um, uh, offers cultural products, right? So, you know, it's encountering regulations that are can be around the protection of culture, culture industries, you know, pr production of local culture, as well as just in general foreign investment rules, like, you know, how much of a certain industry can be controlled by an outside, um, you know, a, a foreign company, et cetera. So one of the things that I think has been interesting is seeing how, um, you know, in, in the Canadian case, you know, initially um, the fact that Amazon sold books, uh, you know, uh, was a bookseller, so it was considered a culture industry was an impediment so actually, for a long time, Amazon had no footprint in Canada. It just was a website, you know, that, you know, there was an Amazon.ca, but then it basically had Canadian companies do all its work on the ground uh, because it couldn't really have a presence in Canada. But interestingly, it's used its ability to promote Canadian content. So, you know, promote Canadian authors, um, you know, uh, celebrate, you know, Canadian music or, you know, Canadian, um, you know, uh, televised content, but especially books, I think it's used that as a way to sort of say, well, hey, we can not only be a great way to promote that content within Canada, but because we're an international company, we can, you know, spread the word about this content globally. So that's been seen as in a way a net positive. And so that's actually facilitated um, Canada relaxing its rules and saying, okay, now we think that Amazon is a net positive for Canadian culture and business, right? Like hiring people, jobs, et cetera. And so then now, now Amazon is much more fully in Canada, has its own, you know, warehouses and um, headquarters and things of that nature. Mm. So I think that, um, you know, it's been, it's a different story in every country um, and region, obviously. Um, but the Amazon works all the angles, um, and it's just looking for those growth opportunities and a way to stay ahead of incumbents or other platform imperialists, say like Alibaba. Yeah, right. So to kind of have the final question, <laughs> knowing all of this and, uh, and being in a situation where we can ask what are the costs actually of this kind of convenience, you write that uh, our democratic institutions of governance are not really prepared for this rate of change or this concentration of corporate wealth and power. But uh, you still sketch a couple of ways that we could mobilize against the power of tech platforms. What is it that you suggest that we do and can do to kind of counteract this? Yeah, I, I think, you know, one of my um, goals with the book is to really um, make more visible to consumers um, the stakes of Amazon's platform power and to point out, you know, yes, there's resistance against Amazon and there's people calling out different practices, but typically those are the workers. So it seems like there's really a space and a need for more um, consumer involvement in um, asking questions about Amazon's power and, um, you know, really encouraging our lawmakers and, and, and um, you know, regulators to, um, to scrutinize it and if, when appropriate, to rein it in. So, you know, I think it's important to, you know, do a couple things. I mean, one is to try to um, collectivize Amazon consumers, because in general, I, I think Amazon really individualizes and isolates us. Um, as I mentioned, I think we all have quite different relationships with Amazon. 
online shopping itself, which is what how most of us interact with it, is a thing we do privately in our homes. So, you know, perhaps unlike other types of, of consumer identities, like we don't have a place or a time, um, you know, to encounter ourselves, each other as Amazon consumers, right? We're not getting together as, as a Harley Davidson fan club. There's no like equivalent to that. So, um, and it's not like Facebook either. Like there've been, you know, some protests against Facebook, like the Stop Hate for Profit um, uh, campaign a few years ago, you know, but people are on Facebook, like they can talk to each other about Facebook on Facebook. So there isn't really um, a natural place or time for that to happen. So I think thinking about ways that we could um, encounter each other and think about ourselves as a consumer block, as opposed to very individualized um, users of Amazon is, is key. Um, because, you know, sometimes people say, well, let's just, you know, people should just stop using Amazon. They shouldn't shop on it as much. They should cancel their prime memberships. But I, I hesitate when I see that as very calls for very individualized action as if it's, oh, it's you, your individual fault that Amazon has as much power as it is, as it has. Like we, we need to think about a much more organized collective response. Um, and another suggestion I have is just to maybe as part of that response as part of what we ask Amazon or re regulators to do to try to rematerialize um, our relationship to Amazon. You know, Amazon, you know, this whole concept of distribution fetishism is saying we're encouraged just to think about our own experience, to think about that very last moment where we get the thing. Um, but obviously there's tremendous materiality to um, the whole distribution uh, chain to all that labor, um, like, you know, we could demand to ask even like to find out where products are coming from, you know, to, to we could demand to ask what carbon impacts are of different delivery options. Um, where, you know, that, that's not even to mention the material nature of all the digital services we use from Amazon. So, you know, understanding more about the data centers and again, the carbon impacts of all those services and the details of how Amazon, you know, uses our data. So I think, Again, back to the black box thing, not just Amazon, but all these um, companies that are able to, they may not sell our data in, in terms of like sending out a spreadsheet, but the ways that they are monetizing it and converting it into various products, you know, or advantages, um, you know, asking or demanding for some more transparency or true explanation of these things, I think could, is just, again, probably a baby step. Um, but I think can be part of um, a response. So thank you. This was absolutely wonderful and a very enlightening conversation. And um, yeah, I was very happy to have you on the show. So this was Emily West on her latest book, Buy Now. And um, is there anything you would like to say to the listeners? Uh, anything that you would like to share on your current work or... Um, no, I just well, actually mostly just want to thank you so much um, for inviting me and for asking such great questions about um, the book that you so clearly read so closely. <laughs> so it's just an absolute pleasure um, to, you know, to share ideas about it. Okay, so thank you. And until next time.